Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Wind him up and let him go. Um, I've had three double espressos today, so I'm very wild. I've had six pints. No, don't tell <laughs> Each week, we um, take a subject and we, we, we decide to kind of surprise each other with a random subject. We've and, lost our and, visuals. Oh, well, I'm going to have to keep going with that. So, um, keep tapping. What we're doing is today, we're going to be doing the history of, and you won't believe this, um, dust. I can't remember whose idea it was. I think it was your fault. No, it was your idea, definitely. It was definitely definitely James's idea, and we suddenly sat down, we had to realise I had to write about the history of dust, which has been a complete nightmare, but we've actually managed to do it, and it's what we tend to do with the podcast. But before we kind of go into that, let me just explain a little bit about, about where this idea came from, because the idea of our podcast, the idea of our new approach to history, itself has a history. And if there's one thing I'd like you all to remember once you leave this, it is absolutely everything has a history. Let's just quickly look around this room. Lights have a history. Curtains have a history. Clothes have a history. The way you're sitting, sir, you're crossing your legs. You wouldn't have been allowed to do that in the 17th century. Your scarf, your trainers, your bag, yeah. um, a hoodie, uh, the badge, the insignia, flags. And, I think and we should move on to dust, shall we? Yeah, start us off with dust. What are you... It was wait, my idea. It was. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> As a historian who works in archives and has lots of things with country houses and private houses and libraries, dust is something that is gravely concerning. Uh, and I read recently, as one does, in the journal The Conservator, uh, an article called The Effects of Visitor Activity on Dust in Historic Collections. Basically, National Trust curators are concerned with National Trust visitors 
uh, who exfoliate. They're worried with their skin because of the, because of the terrible impact that this has on the furniture. So as someone who works in the archives a lot, I mean, the way we work with our podcast is we say, right, I've come up with an idea. Come on, James, off the top of your head, how do you pick apart the history of dust? What would you, how would you go around doing it? And your first example there is from about dust in the archives. Which dust in the archives, but then I could also go... Because I think the, what we try to do, your immediate thing when you start thinking about the history of dust is you think about dust within the home and you start thinking about the history of cleaning. And what we don't want to do is a kind of straight history like that. We operate as cultural historians, and cultural historians pull things apart. They atomise things. You do a taxonomy of something, so you order it so that you can look at it in every single component. So when I start thinking about the dust, I take you on a journey where I think about not just the obvious things, where you could look at the, the sort of feather duster, you could have a debate about whether it is about ostrich feathers, you know, as, as the best ones. You could have a look at domestic cleaners. You could have a look at the advertising and marketing of, of cleaning products and the way in which in the 20th century in America, suddenly people are made to feel incredibly dirty in order for companies to sell them products like that. Or you could look at it in a completely different way, and you could start looking at dust as something that is incredibly small, and you could get into thinking about microscopes and the way in which we can, we can, we can look at incredibly small particles. You could then move to look at uh, dust in different places, so you could think about dust in the archives, dust in the catacombs, you could age dust. You could turn to the Bible and the Quran, which are simply teeming with references to dust. You could think about dust as decay. You could think dust about dust as circularity, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as decay leads to, to new life. And I think what we're going to do today is we're going to take you on a, on a journey. We're going to tell you a narrative about dust. The thing that really struck me when I first... I, I do accept responsibility for deciding to write about history All of dust. All the bizarre ideas are his. I we, try we, and force him back to stationery. Yeah, we did the history of the lean. That was really cool. Anyway, um, the d dust, for me, was... I love it because it is a marking of history itself. It's a marking of time passing. So if you have an object and you leave it on a shelf, it physically changes because it accrues dust over time. Then, if you remove that object, it leaves a little circle, a little square, whatever the shape of the object is. And it becomes an almost like an archaeological signifier of time passing. And I absolutely adored that idea of dust itself being history. It is a physical manifestation of time passing. Now, if you leave that object long enough, then the dust can corrode it. We'll talk, talk about yep. that. Um, but it's also, it isn't just something that is part of the human story. It is essential to the human story, because we now know that the majority of the particles in dust is made out of human skin, which is really gross. It's also, it's also pollen and fibres from clothing, um, uh, and sort of other matter, so but most every of it is time, skin. Let's make some dust, all right? Everyone clap. One, two, three, go. <laughs> right, that's just gone yeah. and created loads and loads of dust. Every time that you clap, you cough, you sneeze, you fart, any kind of movement like that, you walk around, you sit down, you stand up, you talk, you create 
dust. So the, one of the sort of fundamental understandings of this is that it is, dust is crucial to the human story, and also that our bodies are not fixed. Okay, they're in a constant state of flux, so that the biggest organ in the human body is... Skin. skin, very good. And the skin is constantly reproducing, it's constantly changing, cells are constantly dividing. So I am a physically different person now from what I was when we began this long and rambly talk. <laughs> I mean, dust is also about skin. Half an hour ago, it is all about skin. But I'm also a different person now than I was from when I made that point then. And when I made that point then, and then I made that point then. I'm, I'm changing, you are changing, we are all going through history. And to understand the way that humans change helps us understand our position in the world, and that helps us understand history and the patterns of history. So that's a kind of like a, a really fundamental idea which you need to bear in mind when we think about the history of dust and what we can do with it. But what we, I think we're going to go on to explore is our changing relationship with dust over time. Um, do you want to go with I that? Just, I just, before, we go, before we go on to that, before we go on to sort of looking at sort of tiny infinitesimal particles, the connection with that, and it wasn't just a sort of humorous thing, the connection with the National Trust, but National Trust curators are really concerned about the numbers of people that go round their properties. If you up your visitor numbers by 50,000, <laughs> you've got a hell of a lot more people travelling through. That's a lot more dust created. Dust destroys and dust corrodes and our awareness of yep. that has changed. So this is how we can demonstrate that dust itself has a history. So if you take dust as a destroyer, our understanding of that you need to is, you need to deal with it. Is, yeah. is better now than it was 20 years ago. That means that we are better equipped now to preserve our beautiful Houses of the National Trust, our historic ships, whatever that, especially clothes, whatever that might be, our soft furnishings. Rare books, manuscripts. Yeah, so our awareness of dust as a destroyer is better now than it was 20 years ago. But it is now curators are waging a war against dust. Yep. Dust studies is a very big industry, would you believe? I okay. came across these in the British Museum. Are they coffee makers? They're not coffee makers, Sam. You know exactly what they are. That is the microscope. These are 18th century microscopes, and I was wandering through the wonderful collecting halls in the British Museum, which is things that people have collected across the centuries. And these are 18th century microscopes from the Royal Society, uh, preserved there. And you're going to tell us about Just size. Very, very briefly, we're going to run through a load of ideas of different ways of thinking about dust, I think. Go. For thousands of years, dust was the smallest thing known to man, because it's the smallest, pretty much visible particle. So the history of dust is all to do with the history of understanding what dust comprises of, and it's all to do with the history of being able to visibly see dust. So therefore, our understanding of dust and our relationship with dust changes with the development of optics starts with the eyeglass around the 16th century, and then by the 1650, you're able to magnify things 270 times, which is really cool if you think about how long ago that was. So it starts with the eyeglass. There are lots of you with glasses on here. This is, all, this is all part of your history, dust. You should think about it every time you put your glasses on. It's to do with optics. That then changes to the history of the telescope, which is next. 
And um, that's all sorts of wonderful histories to do with war. Did you know, actually, interesting point about nighttime telescopes. So in the 18th century, they invented nighttime telescopes. And they did it by removing one of the central lenses. And that worked. But what happened is it flipped the picture. And so it worked, but you'd end up only looking at things upside down, which wasn't necessarily that helpful. So we have telescopes, and after that, we have microscopes. So only then do we start to begin to understand what is going on with the history of dust. And as soon as you've invented microscopes, you can then start understanding the tininess of the world. You can understand things like atoms and particles. So dust is at the kind of the top of this scale of us understanding large things and moving down to understanding small things, the real bones of our lives. Fear of dust is where we're going next. Yeah. So fear of dust. And this connects to the dust mite. I stayed in a hotel in London, in Kensington, a very nice hotel, and when I got home, my back was covered in bites. Ooh. And I think it was, it was these little things. These little things feed on, on dust. Um, this is a sort of right at the heart of what, of what dust is. They, ca they carry disease, spores. But uh, throughout history, societies, different civilizations have had a sort of an anxiety about dust, an anxiety that's possibly encapsulated in John Wesley uh, and his sermon on dress, 1786. He's the co-founder of Methodism, as you all know. And he talked about cleanliness being next to godliness. So dust and being unclean and things being dirty is the sort of exact opposite of something that is, that is clean, that is to do with progress, that can be tied to what Sam was talking about earlier on with the enlightenment, ideas of good manners, politeness. It's the sort of thing that raises the sort of um, the enlightened individual or the good Christian in this way from the worker, which connects us next is pollution. And I think this is, this is a fascinating aspect of dust. Um, one of the things that I think is most striking about the history of dust is the way it connects to the Industrial Revolution. With the Industrial Revolution, you have an inc incredible advancement in technology in all manner of ways. We live in the Southwest. Sam and I both come from Exeter. Many of you are probably local. The Southwest in the 18th and 19th centuries was at the absolute heart of parts of the Industrial Revolution. If you think about copper and tin mining, about two-thirds of the world's copper and tin was produced in this area. This is done at an extremely high cost to the people who were mining. The dust particles that were coming out of this were just ripped their lungs apart. You know, this, so there's a, there's a very sort of negative aspect of this. And along with this sort of advancement in technology and this sort of industrial process, thinkers at the time in the 19th century worry about the, 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 the sort of effects that this has on ordinary people. Think about Karl Marx, for example, in his wonderful book, uh, Das Kapital, uh, which if you, haven't, if you haven't got a copy of it, there are lots of copies of it openly accessible on the internet. But he describes there the cotton mills and the women and children who were engulfed by the dust that was produced by these mills. And I'll just read you an example, I'll just read you an extract from this. The atmosphere of the flax mill in which the children of these virtuous and tender parents work is so loaded 
with dust and fibre from the raw material that is exceptionally unpleasant to stand even ten minutes in the spinning rooms, for you are unable to do so without the most painful sensation owing to the eyes, the ears, the nostrils, the mouth being immediately filled by the clouds of flax dust from which there is no escape. So, I mean, there is a sort of, you know, we've been quite humorous and jovial about dust, but there is an incredibly sort of dark side to it. You think about miners' lung, dust in coal mines. You think about those poor miners from Red Roof who went out to what it, where is now South Africa to work in the mines. Their life expectancy was four years. The drills that they used were nicknamed widow makers because as they were burrowing into the quartz, that stuff was literally killing them from the inside. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's amazing how often we come across subjects like this and we realize there's a sort of dual story to be told. Yep. Um, and... There's, there are so many different kind of contrasts in history, aren't there? In this case, it's, it's you know, the progress of the Industrial Revolution, um, which you can then set against the dangers of, of, of the people who are actually allowing that revolution to go forward. Um, particularly in Victorian pollution, you've got brick dust and you've got coal dust. Those are the two things which utterly transformed the relationship with dust with the vast majority of the population. This is a, a 1837 depiction of a dust heap and we've talked about the we've talked this from the welcome uh, medical history uh, library do you know uh, the clay in, mines in outside st Austell? the what sorry the mines outside st Austell, the china clay mines does anyone know this what i'm talking about they've got the, it's quite very sort of distinctive skyscrape 
Yeah. Um, I always told my kids that it was Cornwall's only volcano. <laughs> <laughs> the, the yeah, pointy, volcanic dust. The, the pointy one like that, which of course it wasn't. But um, it looks very much like that. So it's like a, a spoil heap. But these these spoil heaps were all, all over every city. Yep. I mean, if you think about the, the Industrial Revolution, we talked about chimneys on Friday night. The amount of coal that is being burnt is about three and a half million tonnes in the 19th century. You think about you know, the, the amount of dust or ash that that leaves. It needs to go somewhere. Otherwise, it is going to be sort of floating around the streets. And so you have an incredibly impressive dust industry yep. in London, whereby dust contractors would be commissioned to go around and to run tips like this and to go around and pick up and collect the dust. There's a whole industry in it. it it's, it's value, value in it, dust. There's, there's it? value in dust. It's talked about in Dickens' Mutual Friend. You know, there's, there's a character in there, Nicodemus Boffin, uh, the golden dustman, who makes a fortune out of it, who's based on a, on a real-life man... Henry Dodd, uh, who starts off as a ploughboy, makes his fortune through dust contracting, and on his death, he's worth, and think about this, this is 1881, he's worth £113,000. Um, the dustman, you know, throughout Victorian England is a, is a figure of fun as well. And the Boffin character, the Golden Dustman character in Dickens, is rather a sort of farcical character, comes from very little, inherits lots of money, and then tries to sort of reinvent himself as a sort of new... He's a nouveau riche man who tries to reinvent himself as a, as a sort of learned man, so employs somebody to read to him in order that he can sort of acquire this sort of cultural polish and learning, and he's, and he's altogether you know, very, you know, rather, rather humorous. And I think this, this idea of cleaning away dust does link back to what we were saying when thinking about chimneys, our chapter yep. on chimneys. Yep. Um, and if you think of the chimney sweep, you think of young boys going up and climbing up chimneys to clear away the dust. One way we can look at that is by exploring the danger and misery of life of these chimney sweeps. Flick, flick, a, flick a slide on, there's another But the, the, other, the other way of um, looking at it as well, this, what happened when people were climbing up chimneys is that they very often found things up chimneys, which is really interesting. And one of the most intriguing things I've come across, I think, in the last year of doing this, is the idea of the chimney as an archive. Okay? Yep. This, you might think this is ridiculous, but you would not believe what people have found up chimneys. There's a wonderful find in Aberdeen... Very, very recently, 2014, 2012, and some builders were clearing away a chimney and they pulled out a map. And it was an enormous map. It was a map of the world. It was two metres long by a metre wide. And it was one of three surviving maps from a Dutch uh, map artist from 1600, right? Well, maps would have been incredibly rare, incredibly valuable. It would have been a talk of the building, a talk of the street, a talk of the city, a talk of the talk of the area. This would have been a massively important thing. But at some point in its life, it fell from power and was shoved up a chimney to, to stop a draft. And there are other great examples. So, and lots of letters which are burnt, either um, they're often required to be burnt because it was a secret letter. You'd burn it or partially burn it. The letter would, whoosh, would go up the chimney and then get stuck. And so builders constantly, and dustmen, were finding letters. And one of the wonderful archives we find up letters are kids' letters to Father Christmas. So they're finding half-burnt letters to Father Christmas dating from, like, 1880. And they're absolutely amazing. So they list 
not just sort of an awareness of what's going on, but you have this extraordinary relationship with Father Christmas, how that changes over time, and also you see the hopes and sometimes the fears of children as they change throughout history. So chimney, chimneys and letters get you to sort of childhood innocence. The chimney is also about... You also find all sorts of other things in chimneys. Cats and shoes, scare cats. The chimney is, is fascinating. We think about the industrial chimney and we're talking about dust in an industrial way, but the chimney is... The chimney is a very sort of um, liminal space within the household. It's a sort of channel that links the natural and the supernatural world. So things come down chimneys. You look at folklore around the world and various sort of monsters and bogeymen, witches, bad fairies, goblins, brownies, the bodach, uh, who, who will sort of come down a chimney and take off naughty children. It's a sort of nursery tale that you tell. In order to protect against that, you put things in the chimney or around, around the household. Yeah. And you came across a whole range of examples of cats, not simply just put there, um, but put there in positions, almost like sort of scare, scarecrows. Like a scarecrow that scares birds, but these are cats that scare mice, except they're dead cats and they're posed in front of dead mice or rats and then walled up into hollow walls or put up chimneys. So anyway, well, this is the dusty realm of the chimney, which is all back to my dust, back sorry. to my dust yard. Yep. The dust yard, the industry of dust, people sifting through dust. And what we've got here is a depiction from Henry Mayhew, one of Henry Mayhew's works. Uh, I think uh, 1851. He was a great sort of social commentator. Wrote a whole sort of um, chapter or essay on dustmen. Uh, and he describes here... What's going on here, then? So the people are which, collecting dust, and then people go and... What, so, so if we go back to what we were thinking about before, you have this dust yard, you then have different piles. You've got the massive pile in the middle, and then separate piles where the dust is, what they say, shot down. And you've got people who are clad in... They're in protective, well, relatively sort of stiff clothing here, and they have sieves, and they sieve through the dust because there is wealth in that dust. So you're going through and actually finding, you know, the idea is that you go through and find, um, you know, chance items of jewellery that people may have left. Dust is separate from human excrement. So the dust man is different from the night soil man. And throughout Victorian England, you know, and we're talking here... And, and earlier, we're talking here before, before sewerage systems, before sort of flushing toilets that take effluent away, you know, what would happen with the waste overnight? People would be paid to come round throughout the night and carry it away. And yeah. these night soilmen are fascinating characters. You, I mean, we can, we can look like at It's like a hidden them. history or history it's, from it's, below. It's, 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 a, hi it's yeah. a hidden... It, it is. It is. It's a history from the bottom upwards, you know, quite literally. Um, and these, these... Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, it, I mean, and these people would be... They would go around collecting this at night. We know about them because... We know about them from various reasons, um, not least because of the letters that are written to newspapers complaining about the stench. Um, but also, these are people who, who inhabit the night. So from that, you can go from the history of night soilmen to a fascinating history of what is going on at night. So they're, they're interrupting burglars. You know, they're often, they're often called upon to provide alibis for murderers. So there's a whole sort mm. of, you know, there's a whole sort of murky world. I know, a modern version of this. We were down at Perrinporth. We went surfing with the kids the other day, and there was a guy with a um, metal detector. That's right. Beep. 
walking around. And he was doing the same thing as if searching for value in places other people have been. He was doing it with sand, essentially. So he's on the ah, soft sand of Perenforth, yeah. going, finding beeping thing, getting yep. a sieve out, sieving through, hoping to find a gold ring or a, you know, a few pound coins. Well, it's the kind of thing that you see, you know, you look at those documentaries where you see people in, you know, outside of favelas where the, the poor children with no shoes are sort of, you know, going through rubbish tips. You know, they're making a living out of that. Should we talk about ancient dust? Are you going to talk about ancient dust? Okay, we have 15 minutes left. We've got 10 minutes. We're going to have some questions. Let's just do okay. ancient dust and then wrap up and have some Let's questions. Let's do the dust bowl as well, very quickly. Have we got time for that? Yes. Good. <laughs> the fear of dust is a really interesting thing. So 1920s, you know, let's just think about what people exploring Egypt in the 1920s. So it's all very well saying, uh, my little notebook here has got covered in dust because I haven't dusted the house for three days. What happens if your little notebook has been sat there for two and a half thousand years? 4,000 years. What then? And there's an amazing history of the fear of dust from the 1920s, and it's all to do with people discovering Egyptian mummies. Howard Carter, 1920s, finds Tutankhamun, okay? And it's thousands of years old. No one has been in here, in that grave, for thousands of years, inside the pyramid. He goes in there, and suddenly people start falling sick. People who were on the expedition start falling sick. And the newspapers and the media suddenly get onto their high horses and go, it's a curse. Cursed dust. The breath of the mummy has killed everyone. But it's really interesting because underlying it is a very genuine fear of what is inside that dust that is 4,000 years old. They don't know what's there and they're fearful about pathogens surviving over mm. that time from from ancient history. And archaeologists are now really starting to do that. You know, it's all very well excavating a plague pit in the central London because of Crossrail, but they're properly bricking it, these people, in case the plague survived. Yeah. And there's, it, it is now a, a growing um, scientific area to actually understand which pathogens, what illnesses, what can survive, and how the past can actually be a very, very threatening and dangerous Cobb place. Walls. Those of you who live in, in sort of lovely Jacobean longhouses, uh, a colleague of mine uh, who's an architectural historian tells me that um, this part of Devon, you are living on a cobwall time bomb. Um, these walls are collapsing, and you've got to worry about what is in your walls. But, you know, we, we digress. I want we, have, time. we have two minutes, because I want to have some unexpected history ideas from the audience, so you can test us out and see what we Dust, can come up right. with. You've literally this, got two this, minutes. This will test me. Uh, Dust Bowl, 1930s. One of the things that I think, you know, is very interesting is about the way in which we can think about, we can connect dust to a major uh, historical event, such as the Dust Bowl. The market for wheat in the World War, in World War One in America meant that there was an overproduction of wheat. All the prairie grass was ripped up and was replaced by sort of oceans and oceans of golden wheat. This was also made all the more so by tractors. So the invention of the, of the tractor in America, you think about Henry Ford's Fordson tractor, which suddenly was, 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 very, um, was very affordable. Two things then happen a sort of double whammy. One, we have the Great Depression, and wheat prices fall. We also have a drought, and so the stuff is just withering away. 
all the prairie grass that has been anchoring the topsoil has gone, and you have these, this is an area, this sort of, we're talking about the, the, that sort of panhandle, 150,000 acres of sort of Texas and Kansas, Oklahoma, and these winds come in and just whip up like that, and sand is just blown in huge swathes of dust. If any of you are interested in this, there is an amazing archive at the Library of Congress that's available online. Not only amazing pictures like this, um, you see here, for example, you know, just the impact that that has on a farm, or you know, almost like a sort of tornado-like sandstorm like that. We have images like that, but you also have oral histories. And I was listening the other day to a an Oklahoma woman. Uh, she's interviewed in in 1941 calling back her memories from 1934, and she describes a dust storm coming in and racing to get into the house. They get into the house, shut the doors, put the lights on, but the dust has got in. It's so dark that they can't actually see each other. This is something that is beautifully captured in Grapes of Wrath, which if any of you have, have not read that, it is one of the most brilliant um, novels of 20th century American literature, and Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story, but through that you see the sort of the, the lives of a, of a family who are, you know, displaced uh, by this phenomenon. So, so the way, so getting back to our concept of the histories of the unexpected, what we're trying to do here is take something as simple as dust and showing the way in which it is connected to these, you know, monumental events. Lessons that have been learnt by farmers in America. Sam wants to do us something slightly different and slightly more interactive. This is you testing us now. Yes, yeah, so um, that, that, that's more or less brought it to an end. And I just think the, the point about the Dust Bowl is that people have a changing relationship with dust. And for, for those in America in the 1920s, 1930s, it was a truly, truly horrific experience. Now, we've got five minutes left, and what I'd like to do is to hear some suggestions from you guys about topics that we might be able to incorporate in so, our podcast or in our book. So call them out, and we will respond to well, you. Put your hands up. Teddy bears. Teddy bears. Roosevelt. What? American. Roosevelt. What Teddy that? Roosevelt. Teddy bears. You Teddy got... Roosevelt! I know, I know, but... I mean... It's the first thing that came into my, into my head. <laughs> no, Where no, are you no, going to go with you? Um, a hospital. Hospital children. Um, children being given teddy bears. It's the history of childhood. It's the history of toys. Yeah, mascots. Definitely. Mascots, history of smuggling things in teddy bears. Teddy bears as pockets, which is really interesting. Yep. Uh, teddy bears in horror movies. Yep. There's a transformation from the innocent to the terrifying. That's what I would do. Sorry? Trains, trains are excellent. Trains are all about... Trains war. are all about uh, World War I. Yep. A war by timetable. AJP Taylor. So um, it's, you know, basically, um, it, it was nothing to do with any of the other causes. It was basically because uh, Russia was a backward country. Uh, their railway system uh, needed to be mobilised uh, ahead of time. So they, in fact, that in fact started the First World War. And trains are also with clocks as well, and it's all to do with time. So it's basically everyone was operating on different time zones in the UK. So time here would be different to time in London, because it's based on noon, so it doesn't work when you um, have railways, so you need to have timetables. Industrial Revolution, uh, tourism, communication, I mean, rail what, 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 what we wouldn't do is, you know, the sort of um, trains, I mean, it, it could be actually um, train spotting, uh, and the sort of, um, and the history of the geek, the history of the fanatic, 
the history of timetables. So see, everything is connected in very unexpected ways. We have a, 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 a polite... Victorian lunatic asylum. Oh, I like those. <laughs> oh, that is what, a history of madness. There's a, there's a fascinating history of lunatic asylums as well, which connects us to um, domestic disputes between husbands and wives. Um, and there's a, there's a brilliant um, essay by Judith Falkovitz where she, she talks about a character, uh, a woman who, um, who is, uh, 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 has, holds seances, and her husband tries to commit her to a lunatic asylum uh, in, order for her to, in order for him to basically get rid of her, inherit her money, and remarry somebody else. And there's a wonderful sort of, you know, elaborate sort of tale about, about this, uh, where she ends up performing it on the stage to sort of get back at her husband. So I think we could do that, we could do that anyway. I mean, you could give the sort of the straight history of the lunatic asylum, and you could talk about it in that sort of way, but you could also use it to sort of riff off in different directions. Do we have other hands? Migration. Migration? That's really interesting. How would we do migration differently? The history of movement, the history of ideas, the his that's all very obvious. You'd have to do a kind of a sideways version of migration. Migration is going to be all about disease. All about Mayflower. You could start with Mayflower. Interaction, people, ideas, commodities. I mean, migration, migration is enormous because you can look at migration in terms of traffic and transport, communication, the movement of ideas, the movement of people, the movement of goods. You know, the, the population of different, uh, populating of different areas. I, the fundamental point is that migration itself has a history. So people were migrating yep. for different reasons at different times, and it, it corresponding always, societies it always changes. Transport. I mean, it's a uh, yeah, very good. We've got time for one more, then what we're going to stop. The young, young man in the yes. front. Yay! Oh, I love scaffolding. Love That's a wonderful idea. Yeah, we will definitely do scaffolding. So scaffolding. Uh, is about is about renovation, suicide, reform. Oh, yes, it is. It is. And, and this, Have you ever met a scaffolder? It's about it's about masculinity as well. Bit, it is. It's about being disability. rock hard. Yeah, tattoos. Have you it's, ever seen a scaffolder without a tattoo? Because I haven't. I know a one a one armed scaffolder. Yeah. as well, who works locally, who's amazing. Um, I, I wonder what scaffolding they... is also about accidents. I'm really excited about scaffolding. It's yeah. really cool. It's about accidents. It's about when the plank is taken. I, I know an anecdote about somebody who was wandering along, expecting a plank to be there. The plank was taken away, and he just sort of walked. Boom. And I spent a lot of Broke time in China back. recently, and so they'll, they, they build things like in London. You go and see them building the gherkin, and it's amazing, and it's surrounded by proper scaffolding. But you go and see the same thing in Shanghai or Beijing. It's covered in bamboo. It's unbelievably it's dangerous. It's, it's about what you do with scaffolding as well. Um, when I was a, an undergraduate in, in Oxford, uh, scaffolding was all about the, the, the dispute between town and gown. Uh, so the townies uh, would chase uh, students across Magdalen Bridge with a scaffolding pole. Oh God! Um, yeah. And I'm sure that's a, I'm sure that's a, a history that you can take, you know, way back. Good. Uh, a round of applause for the best question from this young man here. Thank you very much. And, and um, where do they find us? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there we go. You can, um, we're part of Dan Snow's History Hit podcast network. So you can search for historyhit.com or historyh.it forward slash unexpected. We're on Twitter and Facebook at unexpectedpod. This is when we clap you guys for coming to see us because you've you spent your much. time. Thank you.